even in the death of a child, this can relate kind of across many situations, is that families are already sad. That loss that they've had and that death is with them. You walking in and saying, I'm so sorry, is not going to make them more upset. In fact, they're living in that all the time. And I think as a society, we're afraid to acknowledge it because we think we're going to upset them more. But in fact, what we're doing is acknowledging their loss. Welcome to season two of Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious illness and health-related situations as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Strachan. Having a baby is supposed to be a very happy event, but when a baby is diagnosed with a potentially life-threatening condition in the perinatal period, that is the time before or shortly after birth, families are faced with new realities and require special supports and understanding. It is demanding relational work, yet for nurse practitioner Jennifer Callan, it's work she loves. Jennifer is a nurse practitioner with 20 years experience in neonatal intensive care, and she now works with the Quality of Life and Advanced Care Program at McMaster's Children's Hospital in Ontario, Canada. And she's part of the perinatal program there that serves infants and families. Her role also enhances patient transitions between hospital and home and aims to reduce hospitalizations and emergency room visits. So Jennifer, I'm so happy to be able to speak to you about this really difficult topic, and that is perinatal loss and uh, how nurses can communicate with parents and and families uh, around this, because it's one of the most challenging things that I think I've had to do in my own career, and uh, it seems to be associated with so much sadness. And so uh, it's really wonderful that you're able to share your wisdom and and the science uh, around this so that so that many other people can take this into their practice. and I, and I'm wondering if we could start with just telling us a bit what is your role and uh, how did that happen for you? Uh, Patricia, thank you so much for for having me. Um, it really is an opportunity um, uh, to talk about the work that I do and the work that my team does as well. Um, so I work with the quality of life and advanced care team at McMaster, which we call ourselves the QualiCare team or the QualiCare program. So we are a team that um, works together with families um, who have a diagnosis of a baby or an infant or a child um, with a serious and potentially life-limiting illness. My role specifically has sort of uh, morphed over the years. Um, I was initially, I initially came to this role in 2019 and I came with some experience from the neonatal intensive care unit, um, being originally trained as a neonatal nurse practitioner. Um, and I worked in the unit for 20 years in that role. Uh, and decided it was time for a change. And uh, through some personal experiences, really um, 
found my way in the world of palliative care in general and and so I I leapt into the into the Koala Care team and because of that experience I started really focusing on the consults that we were receiving from the NICU. Sorry, that's the neonatal ICU. That's the neonatal ICU, correct. And then from being involved with babies in the neonatal intensive care unit, you know, that's at McMaster on the fourth floor. And on the fourth floor, there's also the obstetrics. Um, It's kind of a unique setup because McMaster provides care for high-risk obstetrical patients as well. Um, in the same setting. And so like some hospitals have that separately, but but we're sort of unique in that way. And I was able to talk with one of the nurse practitioners there who um, supported families in maternal fetal medicine. And I remember one day she said, Jen, would you ever consider supporting families who have this diagnosis in utero, like diagnosis of a baby with a life-limiting illness? And I brought that back to our physician team and they were really supportive of that idea. And really other pediatric palliative care teams in the province already have that set up. Um, so for instance, Ottawa or CHEO, um, as well as Toronto um, has a program called the IMPACT program. And so this was the opportunity to bring this type of program to McMaster um, Although we didn't have the formalized funding at that time, but we just started taking patients sort of one at a time, forging through, and and now we actually do have the funding. And so um, my my specific role will be exactly focusing on that perinatal population, uh, which includes families who are diagnosed with a baby with a serious and life-limiting condition in utero, and then also... Um, so once those babies are born, I'll be following them in the neonatal unit as well. Okay. So I'm wondering if you can maybe t- give some examples of situations that you are in or asked to be part of. How does that, how does that happen? Yeah. So um, what we do often is we start um with a consult request. Um, So many of, I'll I'll give an example of the the families who have a baby in utero to start. And I can can also share a neonatal example um, separately. So for for the babies in utero, what happens is often women will um, be followed often in the community. Um, And so they'll have their 20 week ultrasound, which is the, the big anatomy ultrasound. Or sometimes they'll have ultrasounds before that time and there may be a flag um, of a problem that's detected in the ultrasound. And so they are referred to the prenatal diagnosis clinic at McMaster. And in that clinic, their specialty is really to probably order repeat scans that are done at kind of the tertiary level. Um, So those are repeated at McMaster. And depending on what they find in those scans, the genetics counselors in the clinic uh, sit down with families and talk about what investigations can be done um, to determine what is 
the problem with the baby? What what are they detecting? Um, because sometimes there's a lot of different soft signs on the ultrasound that they see. You know, they can see a choroid plexus cyst or they can see a thickened nuchal fold. And sometimes they can put all that information together and say, I'm worried about this particular condition. Uh, so an example of those conditions that we might see um, would be something like a baby's diagnosed with trisomy 18 or trisomy 13 um, or other chromosomal problems. Um, there are many other problems on top of those, but those are sort of some of the most common issues that we come across. Although I say most common, it's actually the conditions themselves are extremely rare. So we we then get a consult saying, you know, this family is expecting a baby with trisomy 18. Sometimes it's confirmed through the amniocentesis and sometimes just all the signs on the ultrasound are, are pointing in that direction. And depending on the family, really what happens is prenatal diagnosis provides the counseling. So they talk about the condition with the families and they share some of the options that the families have in terms of either termination of pregnancy or the decision to continue pregnancy. And continuing pregnancy also has different choices associated with the continuing the pregnancy. And sometimes that's where we're consulted at this point in time based on our capacity is when the family chooses to continue pregnancy. Um, I think eventually our team is hoping to be involved in all cases, um, and especially with the funding, um, we may be able to offer um, more support for families who also choose termination of pregnancy. Uh, so once they decide to continue pregnancy, then we meet the family and we really talk about um, really getting to know them and who they are and what is meaningful to them. Um, we talk about, you know, options that that they may not have thought about, um, especially in the conditions that are quite life limiting. We talk about the, you know, the opportunity of the baby being born, of them carrying the pregnancy um, and then the baby being born and um, offering comfort care once the baby is born. So that's more the direction of uh, not offering medical intervention. And then there's the other option as well of offering medical intervention. And when we start talking about that, we often include the neonatal team because we want the neonatologists to be able to sit with the family and explain in detail, what does that mean? What does medical intervention look like? You know, what are the chances of success with medical intervention? And we really try and sit with families and explore all the worries, the fears, the thoughts, um, the values. You know, some families just feel that within their value system, they, they can't not do medical intervention. And other families say, you know, if the chances of my baby's survival, even with medical intervention, being really, really small, then I want to be able to spend that time with my baby once he or she is born. I want to be able to hold them. I, I want to be with them for as long as they'll be with us. 
And so we talk about what that process might look like. So along with the process comes a lot of talk. And uh, I've heard you say that there's a lot of things that would be explained. And I've heard a lot of terms that we are very familiar with. And I'm sure some of the public might be, but some might not be. And particularly if English is a second language, you know, the terms may not have been familiar to people. So even the term life limiting, you know, I know we're using that all the time now. What is that? You know, how would you explain that to someone? Yeah, I, that's an excellent question. And and we do use all these terms medically. Um, when we're speaking with families, we, we try our best not to use the same terminology. And we really try to explain what that means. Um, so we had a family that we worked with um, who had a baby with one of those trisomies. The tri- I think it was a trisomy 13. The father was lovely, very well educated. And he said to us, you know, Jen, um, we sat with the medical team and they said her diagnosis is incompatible with life. He's like, what does that mean? You know, it said on her ultrasound that her heart was strong and her lungs are strong. So what does that mean? And I, you know, one of our physicians and myself, we sat together with this family probably for over an hour and really tried to distill exactly what that meant. And we said, you know, in a baby born with trisomy 13, we know that all their cells have an extra chromosome of trisomy 13 on the 13th chromosome. And we worry about how those cells will function. And that includes every cell within the body. And so we know in some babies with that condition that um, they can have issues with their breathing. Uh, Sometimes their breathing stops. We call that an apnea because we know that the signal from the brain to elicit breathing, to, to help them take that breath, is not always connected as we would hope And these are things that we can't see on images. You know, even if we did an MRI of the brain, it doesn't tell us how that brain works. It tells us what parts are there, you know, that maybe the brainstem is there and maybe that something isn't pressing on the brainstem, but it doesn't tell us that we call it, you know, the nerves or the wires. Um, And we try to make those analogies. The wiring isn't functioning the way we would like. Maybe there's a short somewhere in the wiring. And and this is what makes us worry as medical professionals, that even with our best efforts to support your baby in breathing, that ultimately he or she may not be able to breathe on her own. And, And those are some of the conversations we have. And they're difficult because even you know, the best medical professionals will say there's even a range within that disorder. So for instance, in trisomy 13, some will do better than others. Um, Sometimes we can predict that because, you know, maybe right away we'll see, oh, this baby has much more involvement of their brain than this baby. But sometimes we can predict that. 
Um, and that's where we have to have a little bit of humility as well as medical practitioners and saying, we don't know everything. We don't have the crystal ball. I think having the crystal ball in this in this role would be amazing. Uh, but at the same time, we don't have it. And so, you know, we talk through the options with families and share and distill the medical information to the best of our ability. So uh, that term, uh, incompatible with life, where would he have, would that someone have said that to him or would he have read that on a uh, report, let's say? Because I'm thinking lots of times people are getting reports and we're sharing, you know, diagnostic testing results with folks. Yes. I mean, I, I really think he heard it and mm-hmm. read it mm-hmm. and read it on reports and read it on Google. It becomes really challenging, as you allude to, you know, families have and we think it's wonderful. Families have access to my chart. Um, they're able to read results. They're able to come back and question, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. And and it takes time. It takes time to sit and have those conversations and distill the information. Right. Um, you know, some of our families, as you say, are coming from various backgrounds. Some families have a little medical knowledge. Some have absolutely none. Um, some families are coming um, with English as a second language, and and we do our very best to sit in those meetings with translators. Um, I shouldn't even say our very best. We insist on it. We we must have. Um, it's such a difficult and challenging conversation that we must have the ability to translate for families. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're thankful at McMaster we have a new system where we can use um, an iPad and just dial up a translator. Um, and, and that's been working really well. That's amazing. You, you were in a very special situation in that your, uh, your role means that you have time cut out to have conversations. Uh, families, uh, expectant mothers, uh, are exposed to nurses and other health professionals everywhere else. And so I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit around some of the language that we can use as we care for these families in various places. So in community, in in hospital, on in emergency departments, in hospital wards, etc., where people don't have the space carved out. And thinking about some of the language that we need to be careful, I guess, about using or thoughtful uh, about using. I think so many people, even nurses who are exposed to suffering and help people through suffering so much, are worried about inflicting more pain on people. And I think sometimes the, you know, what we tend to do is use medical language that feels more mechanical and not so hurtful, perhaps, to distance ourselves. Any thoughts there around, you know, because that one is is one that I've heard used is incompatible with life, or we talk about life limiting. It's like, okay, well, that what does that mean? Does that mean someone will die? Or does it just mean there's certain things they can't do? 
It's interesting. I I think it's a really challenging place to be in, um, as I was for 20 years, working in a high-intensity environment um, with babies and families where there's a lot of information to be shared and a lot of stress. Um, and it's difficult to be able to have that time to sit with families and, and really provide the support that, that you want to provide, that I think every professional wants to be able to provide. One of the things that I always think about, and sometimes I, I actually don't think it takes a lot, but what I really try to prioritize is, is coming into the situation as non-judgmental as I can be. This comes from personal experience um, with my own parents who um, have both died from cancer and being in the medical system and feeling at times judged. And I, my, my goal, as is the goal of the Koala Care program, is to really meet families where they this is not my situation. This is not my baby. I don't have necessarily the same value system, the same culture. Um, you know, back, way back to my nursing training, I, we talked about the lived experience. What is that person's lived experience? That's what we're trying to, to figure out. And I try to come into the situation with an open mind and meeting the family where they are. Are there are there any particular things that are challenging for you then in doing that? I think there can be challenges when you worry that a family is making a choice that you hope they understand the consequences of. You know, in some situations families will say I want to provide full medical intervention. I need to know that I've offered my child the best chance at life. In some situations as a medical professional, you really worry because you know their underlying diagnosis. You know there may be complications um, on top of that diagnosis, like some babies have problems with, you know, like a diaphragmatic hernia or um, things like the bowels growing outside of the body on top of the chromosomal problem. Um, and, you know, families share that they still, they want the intervention. And I think as healthcare professionals, we sometimes look like, oh, you know, in our heads, we might be all thinking, we know this baby is not likely to survive, even with the medical intervention. We know that once the baby's born, the baby's going to be whisked away from the family. There's going to be, you know, the baby's going to be provided resuscitation, that the baby's going to be um, hooked up to a ventilator um, and is going to need IV fluids and potential medications to help with blood pressure. And, and so all of those things, I worry that sometimes families are missing out on holding and spending the time together. And some of my healthcare colleagues will share, like, we worry that the baby will suffer mm -hmm. um, and maybe suffer unnecessarily in, the, in their minds. And so mm -hmm. it's that balance between knowing 
that for the family, for their future and their grieving process, that they need to know they did everything they could. Right. And balancing the baby's suffering at the same time. And our team will always share with families and healthcare providers that in some ways we can eliminate physical suffering. You know, we can provide medications to babies that take away pain, that take away discomfort. We can try to support existential suffering. And that would probably be more on within the the realm of the parents um, and coming to terms with everything that's happening uh, to their baby. And so there, there are those challenges. But when I think about the challenges, I think about the bigger picture. And there's always two different um, sides to think about. Mm -hmm. So in the uh, time, whatever is the choice of of parents, as I said, people will have exposure to the medical system. That may result in people saying things to them to try and offer comfort. So I'm thinking about the everything happens for a reason or uh, you have other children, or a good thing, at least you have other children, or something like that. Those are things that sometimes are said by people in public, but also have been said by health professionals. I wonder if you can comment on our <laughs> use of phrases like that, how helpful they are for people. Yeah, I, I would share that that I know from families sharing with us, Um and from families sharing with other teams in, in similar situations that, that those phrases ultimately aren't helpful. Um, they can sort of devalue the experience or devalidate the experience that the family is going through. Um, I know people are well-meaning and, and sometimes we sit with families and share that you may hear these phrases, even from your closest family members. And we kind of talk to families about it from the perspective of our society and our discomfort with death and dying, and especially our discomfort with death and dying of a baby, because that's just not the natural process. Uh, of life. And so we talk about how people will will try to help families feel more comfortable. Per- health professionals might feel that, you know, they're just trying to offer some comfort, like try to look on the bright side. Um, you know, and in those moments, I think learning as a health professional to sit with the pain and discomfort is a skill. And is a challenge. And it's maybe a challenge that I would put out there to, to health professionals. Um, one of my colleagues helped me with that. Um, Dr. Zuniga is a physician with our team. And we went to a family visit uh, and we were doing a bereavement visit, a follow-up, because we follow the whole trajectory from you know in utero to bereavement support. And we had this lovely home visit with this family whose baby had died at home and whom I had supported through that process. And he sat with the family and talked and, you know, how are they feeling? Where are they at? And I just sat there, you know, this is one of my early visits, completely quiet. 
And we drove there together. We drove home together. And he said, Jen, you were, you were really quiet. And I said, yeah, I just thought if I was going to start talking that I was just going to start crying. And the family wasn't crying, but I felt so emotional being there um, and hearing them talk about, like we were actually coming on to the Christmas season and hearing them talk about Christmas without their baby and what they had imagined Christmas to be and what isn't going to be. He talked to me about empathy and compassion. And he said, you know, inherently, I am a very empathetic person. And so he said, you were sitting in empathy. You were feeling what they are feeling. Um, And he said, how helpful do you think you were to the family in that moment? And I said, not helpful at all. (laughs) I was essentially a fly on the wall. And I said, but you did a beautiful job, Dr. Greg. (laughs) So he said, have you ever thought about stepping into a place of compassion where you're not feeling what the family's feeling? This isn't your experience, but you want to be helpful to them. So how can you be helpful to them in that moment? Um, And so I was able to look at some of the literature through empathy and compassion as well and do some reading and really try to reframe where I come from in those moments. And I think ultimately that allows us to sit in those moments of sadness and grief and continue to do that day after day in a role and, and be able to slightly, not in a cold way, distance yourself you know, but to be there, to be present with the family and and to sit and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry this is happening. And know that we are here for you and we are here to support you. And if there's anything I can do right now to make something a little bit easier, please let me know. And sometimes it's difficult for families even to think of that in the moment. But, you know, if you're in the eMERGE, um, I'm going to go and get you a drink and, and some food. Can I, like, very little gestures um, can mean a lot to families. And, and even that moment of, can you take a minute, a minute just to sit quietly and be present will make a big difference. Um, And coming to that family with that sort of headspace of, you know, this is their situation. I I can't judge what's happening right now. I'm going to support them through their situation. And I'm going to come from a place of compassion. And it's going to be very sad and difficult, but I can do it. And then, you know, I can reset myself and go to the next room where there's a completely different situation happening. Um, it, it does take practice and and it does take some mindfulness, uh, but I, I believe that that we can all do it. That's so interesting. And also that you separate those two things out. Can you, I'm not sure if you'll be able to uh, articulate this, but that when you're just saying around, you know, being mindful that you are stepping into a different place. Is there something, is there a trigger? How do you cue yourself? Or how you learn to do that? 
Yeah, I think you learn and and through my team, again, I will share, like I practice with um, pediatric palliative care physicians who, who have done this training. Um, and, and my physician team has really, um, as well as the clinical specialists on our team, and, and we have a child life specialist, and we all work together to support each other in maintaining these practices. Okay. Um, and so we share, you know, I'll, I learn different tidbits from each member of the team. Um, and one of my other team members, Dr. Humphreys, um, practices, I think, very mindfully and will share, you know, before we go into a space or a room or a Zoom, uh, we need to be aware, just think for a minute what we're walking into um, and how our demeanor can affect um, the families that we're working with. Um, I will share that, you know, outside of our patient visits, we we joke around. We, we have, you know, fun interactions with each other. Um, people will see us in the hallway and we're like, hey, how are you guys? we carry ourselves as other professionals would in between, but when we're in those moments, we are purposefully there um, with the family. So what I'm hearing you say is that having the team culture, the mentoring, the support is really crucial to what, to the work. I feel it is crucial. And, and, you know, as a team, we also do um, wellness sessions uh, once a month together, um, just to be able to share with each other, you know, a little bit about, because let's face it, we all have situations that are challenging and can be more difficult some, some days than others. Um, we may have a patient or family that we really resonate with and we've connected or we've cared for over the years. Um, and it's now the end of the journey. Uh, and so we try to really support each other through that. And I will share that whenever I interact with health professionals in my role, um, I really try my best to take the time and especially targeting the nurses to say, how are you doing? Like, you know, you're the one sort of hands-on with the family, with the baby, with the parents. Um, is there any, are there any questions you have? Do you want to talk about anything? Um, here's some tips that I have for navigating these difficult days uh, and, and really trying to sort of continue that mentorship that I had and passing that down um, to the other team members. And even some of the physicians, like not yeah. just nursing, but all the team members, it, yeah. it's really challenging. Some physicians have to sit in family meetings and deliver really horrible news to families. And then, yes, it is. And and then as nurses, we know that what often happens is then after those conversations, people then question the nurses about what was said and kind of going over it. Um, what do we say? You know, how do you, you know, what do nurses tell you is hard about that? Or what, what is it that they need help with? Yeah, so I think what I'm noticing in healthcare now is a, an influx of new nurses, um, which is amazing. Um, and, but at the same time, you know, many nurses haven't yet experienced their first death of a baby, 
um, and they're sitting in these challenging situations. And often I think what they need is, is just to know that they do have some support and they do have someone they can turn to um, if they want to talk about the difficulties. And sometimes we even share, you know, our own curiosity often gets the best of us. I can think in the NICU sometimes, you know, our NICU is set up in different pods. And so, you know, a nurse can be in a family meeting, they'll come back and the rest of the pod nurses will be like, okay, so what happened? Is it, you know, do you like, did anything? And, and I think sometimes being able to actually boundary yourself too and say, you know, that was tough and, and maybe I'll talk about it eventually, but right now I, I just need a moment and I'm going to, you know, continue on with my assignment or um, being able to place some healthy boundaries to, to protect yourself so that you're not reliving that family meeting over and over again um, is, is appropriate as well. So that's interesting, sort of re-traumatizing yourself. Um, but so I think you're talking about ideal conditions where people do have someone. And I think so many times, especially now, there isn't anybody or people don't know that there is someone. So um, in terms of if someone uh, has a, uh, so here I was going to use the term lost a baby, and yet I know that sometimes people don't know what that means, that there are people, that that's not a phrase that's helpful about losing a baby because uh, it may not be understood as the death of a baby. But there are many situations where a nurse would walk into a room where someone has had a stillbirth, perhaps, or had a miscarriage or, you know, lost a pregnancy. So uh, do you acknowledge it? Um, you know, what do people say? Right. Oftentimes, again, it's it's kind of looking to the people surrounding you and, and having those conversations. So another team that we work really closely with are the social workers on the fourth floor, the women's health social workers. And, um, you know, at this time, our team doesn't necessarily support um, the, the miscarriage and the stillbirths, but I know that's the work that the social workers are doing and supporting families through those situations along with the labor and delivery team. And um, there are signs that are placed on um, doors, like there's a butterfly sign so that people know um, to check with the nurse before entering the room. Um, but let's say, you know, like sometimes it's a medical professional like anesthesia, let's say, who's who's going into the room. Um, it, I think a big a big piece of information that families share with us is, you know, and even in the death of a child, this can relate kind of across many situations, is that families are already sad. That loss that they've had and that death is with them. You walking in and saying, I'm so sorry that your child has has passed, has died, whatever the terminology you want to use, is not going to make them more upset. In fact, they're living in that all the time. And I think as a society, we're afraid to acknowledge it because we think we're going to upset them more. But in fact, what we're doing is acknowledging their loss and saying to them that you're extremely sorry and, and that your heart is with them and that you're thinking of them. Um, 
And, and families will share with us that is meaningful to them. And, and so even if as a health professional, you know that, I think a simple recognition is not going to make it worse. And I think sometimes people may feel that they walk in, they share the recognition, and, and let's say the family starts crying when they weren't crying. It's also okay. It's okay that they're crying. That is, an, that is a normal response to loss. And that is grief. And you're eliciting those feelings of grief. But that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, and that's where I think, again, we, we tend to shy away. Like, oh, I, I made that mom cry. Um, and, and I'll fully admit that, that as a practitioner, I probably once was that way like oh I'm not going to mention it because I just don't want to make them cry and um I admit that I've done that but in just through my learning and experience and working more closely with death and dying um that's what families share is they want people to acknowledge they want people to talk about their child I think one of the gifts that you can give to a family is to to ask them about their child oh, did you get a chance to hold her? You know, um, I heard she was beautiful. I heard she had a lot of hair. Um, families want their child to be, remem- to be remembered and remembered fondly. So I know that that's true of anyone. Uh, I think I can make that generalization who's lost a child, not, not, not just a child that is, um, has been recently born. Um, that they are their person and they were important to them. So you were talking about after a baby's death. So that would have been an expected death. What is it? There is a time where we're not sure sometimes. Normally in a labor and delivery situation, we're expecting a joyful moment and welcoming into the world and this is how is this different i mean that sounds like a terrible question but but you're still sometimes and delivering sorry, share with me how baby. is expected versus unexpected yeah yeah because the or i'm thinking about the tension between you know you know that this baby has uh a genetic let's say um problem that they may be able to survive you know, a day, two days, a week, a year, or they may not. And so that uncertainty at the time of, of birth, I guess, is what I'm talking about. And um, I would say the uncertainty can be fairly challenging um, for families, for care providers. And um, I feel that again, my experience has kind of settled me a little bit more into the uncertainty and realizing and sharing with families that we're going to be there along the way to support you and in figuring out some of the uncertainty. And so for instance, um, a good example I could share is is a baby born with a cardiac problem. Mm -hmm. And so some babies have Um, a cardiac problem uh, that it's difficult to predict when the baby might eventually start showing signs of that problem and then eventually die from that problem. 
And often we share with families that we try to share information in terms of there's a chance when your baby's born that they may live minutes, they may live hours, and they may live days. And sometimes we're sharing they may live months or years. So we try our best to sort of hone in on on that type of timeline. Um, and we share our uncertainty as well. We, we will often share, you know, once the baby's first born, if the baby's looking good, we'll share the baby looks good right now. Um, we know this can change, but we really try to help families focus on not like waiting for when is my baby going to die, but instead focusing on how can I spend the best time with my baby while they are alive? And so we talk about, you know, what kind of memories can we make together? What kind of family and friends do you want to bring in? How are we going to celebrate your child's life from um, a perspective that's meaningful to you? Uh, do you have a spiritual care provider you would like to come in and be a part of that celebration? Would you like photographs? Do you want to take, you know, help your baby have a bath? Um, what are some of the joyful things we can do together? And then we share with families and we always ask, like we will share, we know some signs that the baby will show us when we're, we start to think the baby could be closer to their end of life. Would you like to talk about that ahead of time? We try to demystify death. In babies, often death can be very peaceful. Um, we ensure that it's peaceful. Um, even if some babies have some symptoms, we can take away those symptoms. But oftentimes we find the babies don't require a lot of additional medication or support. And we can ensure that, that, that their death is very peaceful. Um, and we, you know, I, I find I'm sometimes describing to parents that unlike in the medical shows like ER or um, Grey's Anatomy, where it's kind of over-dramatized, some families will be holding their baby and aside from some color changes, they may not even realize their baby has died. It can be that peaceful. And so we try to demystify some of that and take away some anxiety that might actually be associated with the dying process and help also to describe um, what that dying process can look like. Okay, thank you. I'm wondering if maybe we can finish off with some uh, things that parents have shared with you. You've, you've offered us some feedback that you've had. Do you have any sort of final <laughs> uh, guidance to us, I guess, that, that has been particularly helpful to you from parents who you've helped at any particular stage? Yeah, I, I, wow, that's, that's kind of a big question because I feel um, like wise words. <laughs> it's, it's, okay. a tricky, it's a tricky <laughs> one, but I, I think what I can say is that I know that even though it's really hard work partnering with families who 
are facing probably the most difficult time in their lives, um, whether it be because their infant is dying or whether it be because they're in the NICU and they're very ill. Um, I think it's really some of the most rewarding work. And leaning in to developing those relationships and supporting those families allows you to be there for them when when they need you and not just individually but as a team um and and i would just share with people that although it may feel uncomfortable and we kind of shy away from things that are uncomfortable i would encourage people to lean in and and to say and, and to provide the support and and to be there for the family um, because families will share that uh, the support they receive in these situations from care providers who they know care, even just that feeling that they care and they're there um, is so meaningful. It's and, and sometimes in nursing, it's really difficult because we can be very task oriented and, and, you know, oh, well, we didn't start an IV or we didn't change a diaper or we didn't do all these take a temperature um but it's those are the things that are quite easily done it's it's the sitting with people together during those moments of difficulty um that offers so much meaning and the families can feel that support thank you you've shared with me some uh resources that are just so unbelievably helpful, or could be. Do you want to just briefly highlight those? And, and we're going to post those on our website for folks to have a look at, but can you just highlight? So often these are resources that we share with our families, um, sometimes on our first consult or on follow-up consults. One of the um, resources I share is the PALE Network or the Pregnancy and Infant Loss Network. Um, this is a network through um, Sunnybrook um, that has a beautiful website and the ability to support families through their grief and bereavement process. Um, so, uh, you know, I encourage families to reach out. Um, you can even put a submission online and the PIL network will call families Um and, you know, so there are bereavement groups they offer, peer-to-peer -peer groups. Um, so they may ask a little bit of information um, so that they can make sure that they match you with, with people kind of who have experienced similar problems um, or been through something similar. And so um, that's a resource that we often share with our families. For some of our families in uh, the NICU setting who are are have babies who have serious illness and and a lot of medical complexity um a website we often share is something called courageous parents network uh, and so that is a website that ultimately is made by families for families mm -hmm. there is a, a section for healthcare professionals as well um, and they outline a lot of different medical conditions. And, you know, they have a lot of video stories and supports from other families sharing like their journey. Um, what does the journey look like in getting a G-tube? Um, 
there's a decision-making guide for tracheostomy. Uh, and so there's lots of resources there to help families think um, about the questions they want to ask their healthcare professionals, um, to help them understand the medical complexity and technology that may be required. Um, and also something I haven't talked as much about, but the whole emotional and psycho psychosocial support that surrounds a family um, with a child with serious illness and, and what is there for families um, for them to access in terms of um, working through their feelings, working through their stress. Um, and so those those resources, I find uh, the Courageous Parents Network is is really helpful. Thanks. And I know as well in the, uh, not in that one, but in, in other resources that you've offered a link to, there's even some conversation guides or some um, that, that might be helpful for people to use with phrases and Yeah, uh, and so terms. there is the um, Serious Illness Conversation Guide. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I find is really helpful for um, health practitioners. And it is actually a course that, that yes. can be taken as well. Yeah. Um, and it helps care providers in, in using the correct language yes. around um, and how to really get information from families. Like, you know, how does that make you feel? What are your biggest hopes? What are your biggest worries and fears? Um, and it really opens up the conversation uh, to a really authentic place and and open place. Okay. Jennifer, thank you so much for making it a more comfortable place for us to, you know, build relationships with, with families uh, experiencing perinatal loss. And uh, we're very grateful. And we'll put those resources up on our website. Thank you so much for having me, Patricia. This was a a wonderful experience. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We're grateful to those of you who continue to follow and share this podcast on social media and help our audience grow. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at www.radicalnursetalk.com or by emailing us at radicalnursetalk at gmail.com. The producer-editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos-Foley. Social media by Amy Strachan.